you to, to hold that thought in your head, actually. For those people who are in prison camps tonight in North Korea because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ, I hope that about half past seven, you will say, yep, they've made the right choice. They've made the right choice. Because of who Jesus is. That's the, the point of this series. I see lights flashing behind me, so I'm sort of hoping we're uh, live again, are we? We are. So Nigel mentioned this. It's a wee sort of mnemonic device, uh, an aid to memorizing. Um, we're considering who Jesus is. Jesus of Nazareth. And what, we've been, what we're going to be doing is we're, we're having five sessions on this. I've called it Putting Jesus in His Place, which is just borrowing a, a title of a book. Five lines of evidence that we have that prove, that demonstrate that Jesus is God. Okay? Last time, we were thinking about the fact that all the honors that are due to God are also due to Jesus Christ. And we actually went through eight different things that the Bible teaches. We are to glorify Jesus in the way that we're to glorify God. We're to worship him. We're to pray to him. We're to sing to him. We're to trust in him. We're to fear him. We're to serve him. And we're to love and obey him in exactly the same way that we're called to do to God himself. Okay? And if Jesus were not God, it would be blasphemous to call us to do all those things. Now, tonight we're coming to the A. Jesus, the fact that he possesses the attributes of God, that which is true of God is also true of Jesus. Next week, we'll be thinking about the names or the titles that Jesus holds or bears. And we'll find that he shares the same names and titles as God. Then in week four, we'll look at the deeds he performs, the works he performs. They are one and the same as the works that God performs. And then finally, it's a marvelous study, we'll be seeing the seat that he occupies. He actually shares the throne of God. So that's what we're going to uh, be doing in this series now. For tonight, it's a good starting point to just remind yourself what it is that Christians actually believe concerning Jesus Christ. Christians believe that though Jesus Christ was born of a woman, limited to a body, though he grew in wisdom and stature, we're told, though he knew what it was to be hungry, and thirsty and tired, though he was ignorant of the time of his glorious return, 
We'll come to that. And though he died a real death, yet, with all that being utterly true, we believe that Jesus Christ is eternal, uncreated, unchanging, all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present. We believe both those things. We believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one person. And we're talking here about the great truth of the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation. We can't fully comprehend it, but we believe, as God has revealed, that Jesus Christ is an utterly unique individual in human history. He is in a category of one. He is the God-man. And sometimes people make a great mistake. They conclude that because the Son of God became human, he somehow became less than God. That is a terrible mistake. Jesus Christ, as he walked on this earth, was not less than God. Now, understand me correctly in what I'm about to say. He was not less than God. He was more than God. For the purposes of our salvation, God and man were united together in one person. As the Son of God voluntarily imposed limitations upon himself as he veiled his glory in human flesh, as he set aside the privileges of his station, that which was his by right, as he refused to exercise his prerogatives, he did not cease to be God. He condescended to join himself to humanity and to enter into the totality of human experience. And I say again, this is a mystery, folks. And it does present certain paradoxes to us that we're going to be thinking about tonight. But as Christians, we in humility accept the great truth of the incarnation, even if others reject it. Now, an absolutely key text. It's always good to get a real key text for what we're going to be thinking about. And Colossians 2 verse 9 is such a text. It's not an isolated text, but it just says it so wonderfully clearly. Because Paul writes these words, For in Christ, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity or the Godhead lives in bodily form. And the word fullness there is making it explicitly clear that there is nothing of deity 
Nothing of God that is missing, that is absent in the person of Jesus Christ. It's literally true to say that Jesus Christ embodies God. That word literally embodies God. Of course, the opening verses of John's gospel tell us this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh. That's why, of course, Jesus said to Philip, in answer to his question, show us the Father. And Jesus replied by saying, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You've had a perfect revelation of God when you encounter me. It's a very serious thing for all of us to get the hold of. When Jesus Christ is brought before us, God is brought before us. And it's very interesting, throughout the New Testament, we are told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the perfect representation. Now, when you read the opening chapters of the Bible about the creation of humanity, what are we told? Humanity was made in the image of God. Jesus Christ is the image of God. That is a very important category distinction. Humanity reflects the image of God. Jesus Christ reveals the image of God. Now, what we're going to be thinking about tonight is biblical evidence that demonstrates that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who walked our earth 2,000 years ago, who the world has no time for, that he shares the attributes of God. Okay? That's what we're going to be thinking about. First of all, Jesus Christ shares the eternal, uncreated nature of God. Sometimes people make a mistake. They think that Jesus Christ came into existence at Bethlehem. He did not. Jesus Christ existed before he was born. And that, that can't be said of anyone else. You started to exist when you were conceived and born. Not so Jesus. And the absolutely key passage that we'll be coming back to again and again is that famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, which was written to get believers to behave right with each other. Let this attitude characterize you, the same attitude that characterized Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God or being in nature God, did not consider, listen, equality with God, something to be grasped, to be held on to, but he emptied himself. He poured himself out. He made himself nothing and became, took upon himself the role 
of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And in that passage, no doubt Paul wants us to make the connection to Adam. Because Adam, you'll remember, in his selfish arrogance, he sought to become as God, like God, and he grasped at it in disobedience. Christ, however, in selfless humility, chooses, refuses to grasp onto his situation and instead pours himself into that of being a servant and is made in the form of man. You see the complete contrast between Adam and Christ. And we were singing earlier about you're the great I am. And can you, can you remember that explosive confrontation between the Jewish religious rulers and Jesus? They, they tried to stone him at the end for what he said. What was it that Jesus said? Well, he said to the crowd, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham, who lived 2,000 years earlier, he saw my days. And they replied, you're not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. And how did Jesus respond to that? I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, 2,000 years earlier, I am. Now, you've got to understand exactly what Jesus is saying there. He is not just claiming existence prior to Abraham. He is claiming existence of a different order to that of Abraham. He is claiming to be the one who ever is, the self-existent eternal God. What Jesus is doing there is he's in, he is insisting upon the distinction about one who is brought into being and who is temporal and one who is uncreated and eternal. In other words, God, the I am. And his hearers got the point because they left the stones to stone him for what they thought was blasphemy. But it wasn't blasphemy, it was truth. And the New Testament teaches throughout that not only was Jesus around at the beginning of creation. It teaches that he was the architect of it. He was the agent through which everything came into being. And there's the references that some of those verses are well known. The one that doesn't get enough airtime, and I don't know why, is 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. And Paul is writing about idolatry and false gods. And then he says this, speaking for Christians on their behalf. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, 
from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. You see what he's saying? God the Father and God the Son share that eternal uncreated nature and that's why on the night before his crucifixion when Jesus retires to pray to his father for the ordeal that lies in front of him he says this in John 17 verse 5 and now father glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began so yes Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb of Mary. He was made in human likeness. He was born of a woman under the law. But understand this, that the one who is arriving in human history is the eternal, uncreated, incarnate God. That's what Christmas is about. That's what everyone misses with their sentimental little baby in a manger. That's not the start of this one's life. He is eternal <coughs> and uncreated. So the New Testament helps us to see that all that God is, Jesus is. He shares his nature. Secondly, Jesus shares the immutable. It's not a word we're going to use every day. It means unchanging. Jesus shares the immutable nature of God. God's immutability means that he is unchanging in his essential nature and in his character and in his purposes. And we draw from God's immutability the fact that he is reliable, that he is consistent, that he is trustworthy. Now, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Because <clears throat> we're going to see how the unchanging nature of God is contrasted with this passing universe. But we're going to notice something very important that the writer says. Hebrews 1 verse 10. He also says, and I will return to that phrase and underline also. Now here's a quotation. The writer to the Hebrews is now quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting verses from Psalm 102, probably written up to a thousand years before. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. 
the changeless God contrasted with this passing universe. But here's the thing. In Psalm 102, those verses are describing Yahweh, the God of Israel. But who are they describing in Hebrews chapter 1? I said, notice the little phrase in verse 10, he also says. So what had he previously said that he's now adding to? Go to verse 8. But about the Son, he says, the Son of God is the unchanging one. And when the writer to the Hebrews comes to the end of the letter, he takes this theme up again in one of the most beloved texts of Scripture. He says in Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. And what the writer is doing there is he is quoting the final book in the Old Testament, Malachi verse, chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. Yahweh. Jesus Christ shares the same nature as God. And it's on his immutability, his unchangingness, that our eternal security rests secure. He will, Jesus will never ditch his people. <laughs> He'll never move away from that consistent, reliable, unchanging, dependable nature that is God's. Our Savior is dependable. We never need doubt our salvation. Thirdly, Jesus shares the loving nature of God. We all know the truth that's stated in Scripture. God is love. All that love is, is found in God. Now, here's a question for you. Who would dare to say that they are every bit as loving as God himself? That they love others on precisely the same terms and in the same manner and to the same degree that God himself loves others. Anyone here prepared to make that boast? Well, listen to Jesus. John 15 verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I have loved you with the perfect love with which the Father has loved me. You can't get a cigarette paper between the love of God and the love of Christ, for they are one and the same thing. Can I prove that to you? Some of the most beloved verses in the New Testament often read in funerals. Paul asked the question, you know, what shall separate us from the love of Christ. 
Okay, the love of Christ. And then Paul plays about with it a bit. He says, you know, well, will famine do it? Will hunger, will thirst, will, will the sword, will, will death? Will powers above, powers beneath? Will the future? Is there anything that can separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes, no. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that nothing can separate us, listen, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God and the love of Christ, it's one and the same love. Paul's famous prayer in Ephesians 3 about the length and height and breadth and depth of, of, of Christ's love. Of whom could it be said that if you, you understand their love for you, you'll have the very fullness of God and his love in your own soul? Well, listen to these words. Ephesians 3, 17 to 19. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all God's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. If you can grasp Christ's love, you'll have the very fullness of God's love in your soul. The love of Jesus is the love of God. And of course, a great gospel verse Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for this, us in this. Christ died for sinners. You want to see the concrete expression of the love of God, the extent of it? Where do you look? Some abstract theory. No, you look at a cross with Jesus Christ hanging on it. That's where you see the love of God because the love of Christ is the love of God. Now, I said about it being the incarnation is a mystery. There's, there's that which is difficult for us to comprehend uh, and it creates paradoxes. God, fully God and fully man. And this this paradox is seen most acutely when we come to think about what are called the incommunicable attributes of God. That is, the things that are unique to God himself that we do not share. We could call them the omni-attributes of God. You'll have heard omni just means all. You're thinking here about God's omnipotence, the fact that he is all-powerful, and God's omniscience, the fact that he is all-knowing. There's no power over him. There's no knowledge outside of him, and that God is also omnipresent. That is, he is everywhere present. There's nowhere where he is not. Now, how do, we, how do we hold on to those attributes when we come to Jesus of Nazareth, who was in a body, 
who was in Palestine, who lived for a certain amount of time. How do we hold on to those things together? And again, we come back to the crucial importance of Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11. Let me remind you again of what we are told. We are told that Christ, who was in very nature God, who was equal with God, made himself nothing. This is a decisive act from the one who is equal with God. He emptied himself. And we're not left to speculate what that means when he emptied himself, when he poured himself out. The next phrases tell us what it means. He took the role of a servant and was made in human likeness. For the Son of God, the incarnation meant imposing limitations upon himself. He refused to use his divine attributes in a self-serving way. That's why Paul holds Jesus up as an example to Christians and says, remember what Jesus did. He had all that, and he, but he put others first, and that's where to follow that example. But we could put it like this here. In Jesus of Nazareth, we have deity, all that God is, fully possessed, but not fully expressed. And that's very, very important. Let's take omnipotence. God is all-powerful. That's taught from Genesis to Revelation. God is all-powerful. Is Jesus all-powerful? Well, we know that he was hungry and thirsty and weary. We see him actually entering into the experience of death. Was he all-powerful? Well, of course, what we must do is we must look at the ministry of Jesus. And we see in his miracles, what? We see divine power. He does things that only God can do. And yet, he willingly embraces weakness and tiredness and even death. I think one of the, just a cracker illustration of this is, do you remember the temptation when Satan, one aspect of the temptation was because Christ uh, had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Turn those stones into bread. Satisfy yourself independent of God and his mission for you. Could Jesus have turned those stones into bread? I'll tell you, he could have. Because sometime later, when he had a little packed lunch, he fed 5,000 people. So you see what I'm saying? He possesses the power, but he refuses to exercise the power 
in any other cause than the mission that God has given him because he's, he's poured himself out to be a servant who's come as the Savior. And whatever limitation Christ may have placed upon his own divine power in the incarnation, the New Testament is very, very clear that when he ascended back to heaven, he ascended above every power and all rule and authority and any name that can be named, whether now or in the age to come, it's all under his feet. So yes, the incarnation shows us one who is all-powerful but who refuses to fully express his deity, to exercise that. What about omniscience? Can we see divine self-restraint there also? <laughs> we certainly can. I mean, what do we know about Jesus? <laughs> he knew what the religious rulers were thinking. They hadn't articulated it. He knew what they were thinking before they articulated it. He knew the Samaritan woman had five husbands. He knew Lazarus had died before he was told. He knew Judas would betray him before he did. He knew Peter would deny him before he did. And of course, he knew that he would die and rise again after three days. He knew all that. But, but, listen to him speaking as he's talking about his return when the Son of Man will come in his glory when he will be vindicated on this earth. What does he say? No one knows about this day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, not, nor the Son, but only the Father. What a paradox. The one who is omniscient, yet by the self-imposed act of humbling himself in the incarnation does not know the precise time of his vindication on earth. As I said at the start, I don't pretend to, to understand it. I certainly am not going to attempt to explain it, but I am prepared to accept it, for it flows out of the reality of the incarnation and the uniqueness of the God-man. What about omnipresence? First of all, let me tell you what omnipresence is not. Omnipresence does not mean that God is everything. That's pantheism. It does not mean that God is in everything, that that tree is part of God. That is panentheism, actually, slightly different. It does not mean that God's presence is spread out throughout the cosmos so that God is sort of partially present everywhere. Omnipresence means that in some unfathomable way, God is personally, immediately present at every location, simultaneously, and able to act in it. That's what omnipresence means. And of course... Again, what do we find in the ministry of Jesus? He's able to heal at a distance. He doesn't have to be there. He can tell, tell them to go home and they're healed already. 
His word will do it. He can deliver from oppression at a distance. Don't worry, they've been, they've been set free. He could say to Nathaniel, I saw you earlier sitting under the fig tree. He wasn't round another tree looking out. He wasn't there. But what do we find? Because of the reality of the incarnation, the embodied God, it meant that his presence was localized. If he was in the synagogue at Nazareth, he wasn't in the temple at Jerusalem. He went about from place to place. But again, listen to G what Jesus said would be true following his glorification. After the completion of his mission, dying for our sins, rising again from the dead, and returning to the glory he had with the Father before the world began. Now, don't mistake me here. He's still the God-man. Jesus is united to humanity forever. We're told again and again in Scripture, he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. He sits there. We broke bread this morning. What do we, we do it until he come. So if he's coming, he's not here in that immediate sense. The Great Commission. But what do we make of it? What does Jesus say as he's on the point of returning to heaven? Go into all the world and preach the good news. And lo, I'll be with you. I am with you until the end of the age. He tells believers, wherever two or three will gather in my name, I'll be there in the midst. So in whatever sense, the incarnation imposed self-imposed limitations on Jesus. Today, he is indeed omniscient in that sense. Now, where does all this leave you guys? With a sore head, frustrated, or worried that you can't understand it all. You know, you can't discover some neat formula. Or you can't draw a diagram. Or you can't write some tidy definition. Don't worry. Allow yourself to be taken up with the majesty of Christ's person. And with the mystery of the incarnation, God becoming human. In actual fact, the most worrying thing of all would be if you could reduce Jesus Christ to a formula or a diagram or a definition. He's bigger than us and our capacity to understand, for he is the God-man. So let me say it again. Jesus Christ the Son of God is eternal, uncreated, immutable, all-loving, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, yet, yet, for the purposes of our salvation, while here on earth, he knew what it was to be born. 
to be limited to a body. He knew what it was to grow and learn. He knew what it was to be hungry and thirsty and weary. He confessed to not knowing the time of his return. And beyond everything else, he who is life in himself knew what it was to taste death by the grace of God for every man. Jesus did not become less than God. He became more than God. For your salvation and mine, he assumed the role of God's servant and became the God-man. That's who people face. Jesus is not some good guy from history who left a lovely example of being kind to enemies. This is God come among us to provide salvation. I find that very humbling. May each one of us stand before the truth of the incarnate Son of God. And I can't think of any better way to respond as believers than to celebrate the mystery of the incarnation, meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.